गुड मॉर्निंग एवरीबडी आई स्निग्धा शर्मा आई एम गोइंग टू प्रेजेंट द हिंदू एडिटोरियल डेटेड सेवेंथ डिसम्बर टू थाउजेंड ट्वेंटी वन दिस पॉडकास्ट इज फॉर दोज हु रीड न्यूज पेपर दम सेल्स द एनालिसिस ऑफ द एडिटोरियल इज गिवन ऑन द लास्ट सेगमेंट ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड हैप्पी प्रिपरेशन A docket full of unresolved constitutional cases. These involve crucial questions about state power, accountability, and impunity, and cannot be left hanging by the courts. This article is written by Gautam Bhatia. During the framework of the Indian Constitution, it was proposed that any petition alleging a breach of fundamental rights by the state ought to be judicially decided within. one month while the proposal did not ultimately find its way into the text of the constitution it nonetheless articulated something of great importance between the individual and the state there exists a substantial asymmetry of power while the violation of rights whether through executive or legislation is relatively cost less for the state it is the individual or individuals who pay the price and who must then run from pillar to post to vindicate their constitutionally guaranteed rights consequently a constitution is entirely ineffective if a rights violating status quo is allowed to exist and perpetuate for months or even years before it is finally resolved and often by the time resolution comes it is too late in the day for it to have any practical significance blow to accountability this point of course is not limited to the violation of rights but extends to all significant constitutional questions that arise in the course of controversial state action issues around the federal structure elections and many others all involve questions of power and accountability and the longer that courts take to resolve such cases the more we move from a realm of accountability to a realm of impunity In this context as 2021 draws to a close a look at the Supreme Court of India's docket reveals a high of highly significant constitutional cases that were long pending when the year began and are now simply a year older without any sign of resolution around the corner all these cases involve crucial questions about state power accountability and impunity Consequently the longer they are left hanging without a decision the greater the damage that is inflicted upon our constitutional democracy's commitment to the rule of law Kashmir electoral bonds what are some of these cases first there is a constitutional challenge to the presidential orders of august 5 2019 that effectively diluted article 37 of the indian constitution and bifurcated the states of jammu and kashmir into two union territories controlled by the center there is a widespread tendency to view the kashmir question as having been settled after the events of uh, august august 5 2019 with it now being a political impossibility to return to the pre 2019 status quo 
Regrettably, this tendency seems to have gripped the court as well in how acidously it has avoided hearing and deciding the case. But politics aside, the case raises certain fundamental questions about constitutional power and accountability. First, it raises the question of whether the center can take advantage of an Article 356 situation in a state, a time when no elected government and assembly is in existence. To make permanent and irreversible alterations in the very structure of the state itself, the answer will have important ramifications not just for Jammu and Kashmir but for the entire federal structure. India has a long history of the abuse of Article 356 to get rid of inconvenient state governments and a further expansion of the power already enjoyed by the centre will skew an already tilted federal scheme even further. Second, the case also raises the question of whether, under the constitution, the union legislature has authority not simply to alter state boundaries, a power granted to it by Article 3 of the constitution, but degrade a state into a union territory, something that has never been done before, August 5, 2019. If it turned out that the union legislature does have this power, it would essentially mean that India's federal structure is entirely at the mercy of parliament. Parliament could then constitutionally convert India from a union, union of state to a union of union territories, if it so wanted. Needless, needless to say, this as well would sig signal a hugely significant shift in power to the centre. As long as both these questions remain undecided, however, the Acts of August 5, 2019 remain presumptively legal, with the prospect that they may well be repeated in other parts of India. For this reason, the Supreme Court's now two and a half year delay in hearing and answering these questions is unconscionable. Another long pending case is the constitutional challenge to the electoral bond scheme that has now crossed four years. The electoral bond scheme authorizes limitless, anonymous, corporate donations to political parties, making elections funding both entirely opaque to the people as well as being structurally biased towards a party that is in power at the center. In numerous central and state election cycles, in the last four years, thousands of crores of rupees have been spent in an anonymous political donation, thus impacting not only the integrity of the election process, but also the constitutional right of citizens to an informed vote. However, then two interim orders, the Supreme Court has refused to accord a full hearing to the constitutional challenge. In a few months' time, it will be one full five-year cycle of central and state elections, with the case still awaiting a hearing, another black mark on the court's record. It is important to note that both of these cases, the Supreme Court's inaction is not neutral, but rather favours the beneficiaries of the status quo. In other words, by not deciding, the court is in effect deciding in favour of one party, but without a reasoned judgement that justifies its stance. Other key cases. This is also true for a number of other cases pending before the court. For example, as far back as 2013, the Gohati uh, High Court held that the CBI was not established under any statutory authority. This verdict was immediately stayed when it was appealed to the Supreme Court, but in the intervening years, it has never been heard. Thus, the CBI continues to function, 
often controversially, despite a judgment by a constitutional court that has found its very existence to be illegal. More recently, CAA, that is Constitutional Amendment Act, filed in the immediate aftermath of the legislation enactment remain unheard, as do the challenges to the much to the much criticized Section 43D5 of the Unlawful Activi Activities Prevention Act, that is UAPA which makes the grant of bail effectively impossible and is responsible for the years-long incarcerations of several people. The challenge to Section 43 D5 is perhaps the case that most directly affects civil rights as the section continues to be applied on a regular basis, most notoriously in recent times in the Bhima Karigao case, and cases of the kind are legion. It wounds the judiciary. Apart from benefiting the party that profits from the status quo, which as we have seen in invariably by the state, judicial invasion of this kind is also damaging for the accountability of the judiciary itself. Once a court decides a case, its reasoning, which must by definition by public, can be publicly scrutinized and if need be critiqued. In the absence of decision, however, while the court's inaction plays a sig as significant a role on the ground as does its action, there is no judgment and no reasoning that the public can engage with. For obvious reasons, this too has a serious impact on the rule of law. It must be acknowledged that the responsibility for constituting benches and scheduling cases, especially cases that are due to heard by larger benches, rest solely with the CGI. While the three previous CGIs have been criticized for excessive deference to the executive, the current CGI has been on record stressing the importance of the rule of law and the independence of judiciary. One way of demonstrating that an action might be to hear and decide the important constitutional cases pending before the court. Gautam Bhatia is a Delhi-based lawyer. Expanding India's engagement envelope with Russia Beyond existing fields such as defense and energy, there are other areas which can help deepen their links. This article is written by Rajiv Ranjan Chaturvedi. Russian President Vladimir Putin's visit to New Delhi for the 21st India-Russia summit meeting with Prime Minister Narendra Modi highlights the constant efforts by both leaders to nurture and to provide further impetus to the India-Russia special and privileged strategic partnership. In the new grammar of multipolarity and globalization, it is of utmost importance for dependable partners to ensure enduring sensitivity to their mutual interest strategic partnership. More importantly, the robust partnership between India and Russia has come out of the shackles of the Cold War inheritance. A practical and result-oriented approach will pave the way for the most reliable partnership. The Putin-Modi meeting in an atmosphere of unprecedented regional and global transformation can ensure not only a new lease of life, but can also generate more vitality to this trustworthy comradery. India-Russia relations have withstood the test of time and the ever-shifting nature of national interest. Relations between the two countries have deepened with their time irrespective of the quagmire of real politics. 
This exceptional resilience is built on the firm foundation of strategic national interests and the synergy of geopolitics. In the post-Cold War era, India has emerged as an economic warehouse, powerhouse and a key stakeholder in today's global debate, be it climate change, international trade or the menace of terrorism. Russia with its global status and presence presents a win-win situation for deeper cooperation. This relation between both countries have evolved with time, deepening the integration and widening the breadth of the relation. A structure in place, Russia has been one of India's closest friends and allies with the signing of the declaration on the India-Russia strategic partnership in October 2000, which unlocked new opportunities in strategic, science, technology, space, energy, nuclear ties, trade and commerce, culture, for and a people-to-people connect. For a smooth functioning of this strategic partnership, it was governed by an institutionalized dialogue mechanism involving key stakeholders at the political and official levels. Mr. Putin's visit to India in December 2010 heralded a new chapter in India-Russia relations when the strategic partnership was elevated elevated to the level of special and privileged strategic partnership. Convergence and Divergence India and Russia have much convergence spanning different sectors. Russia is a key and principal supplier of arms and armaments to the Indian Armed Forces, accounting for over 60% of weapons. It comprises the whole gamut of covering the Indian Army, Indian Air Force and Indian Navy. India recently inducted the S-400 Triumph missile systems, Sukhoi Su-30 fighter aircraft, T-90 tanks and the Talwar and the Krivak class steel frigates are key weapons and armory of the Indian Armed Force. The India-Russia defense cooperation has evolved from buyer-seller model to a new areas of military te- technical collaboration. The BrahMos missile system was a successful collaboration of joint research, development, production, science and technology. Nuclear energy, space have been key driving forces. But changes in interests and capabilities being fueled by geopolitical differences are widening the divergence between India and Russia. In terms of geostrategy, Russia is aligned with China and India is more anchored towards the United States. The dissonance was apparent in India and Russian approach over Afghanistan. Bilateral trade has seen the two countries progressing from defense and energy to IT, pharmaceuticals, uh, agro-industries, minerals and metallurgy, fertilizers and infrastructure projects. India-Russia trade was valued at the US $10.11 billion in 2019-20, but is not a true reflection of the potential that can be harnessed. Stability and diversity. The 2 plus 2 mechanism has become the standard framework of cooperation to widen collaboration. The inaugural 2 plus 2 dialogue between the foreign and defense ministers of the two countries promises to provide new vitality to the special and privileged strategic partnership. The uniqueness of this approach not only ensures uh, result-oriented cooperation, but also deliberates upon regional and global matters of mutual concerns and interests. At a time when global politics is in a state of flux, it becomes more important to have compatibility with geopolitical and geoeconomic realities along with the trust of the leadership.
Therefore, this evolving political framework provides a necessity necessary agility to the relationship in fine-tuning uh, fine the differences and deepening their bonds. The Modi Putin meeting has sent the unambiguous signal to the world that the India-Russia partnership is incredible friendship, ensuring stability and diversity. Defense and trade and investment, energy and science and technology may be a part of agenda, but India and Russia need to work together in a trilateral manner or using other flexible framework, particularly in Southeast Asia and Central Asia. Their growing collaboration can be a force of stability and will bring more diversity to the region while strengthening multilateralism. Second, the two countries also need to look at people's power, youth exchanges, as well as deeper links in various fields including sports, culture, spiritual and religious studies. Finally, Buddhism can be an area where both countries can expand their interaction, where peace and stability, sustainability can act as a balm in this turbulent world. Rajiv Ranjan Chaturvedi is an associate professor at Nalanda University, Rajkir Bihar. The views expressed are personal. Curved and collared, Myanmar's junta is attempting to break the spirit of the people by jailing their leaders. The sentencing of Myanmar leader to four years in prison on two separate charges on Monday by a court run by the military junta appears to be just the first of a number of sentences aimed at putting state councillor Do Aung San Suu Kyi, President Raymond and other government leaders in custody for decades. The verdict that relate to cases dealing with incitement against the military and for breaching COVID laws are frighteningly farcical. One relates to speeches made during protests against the military's decision to dismiss the result of last November's elections, which Ms. Suki's party, the National League for Democracy, clearly won. The other even more ridiculous is for breaching COVID-19 protocols at an election rally when she was photographed wearing both a face mask and a shield throughout her campaign. The sentences and the ones that will follow are meant not only to ensure an end to the NLD and Miss Suki's public life but are also part of an effort to break the spirit of democratic groups. Over the past eight months since the military coup in February, more than 1,300 civilians protesting the military's actions have been killed and thousands including the entire NLD government arrested, with detentions, trials and sentences carrying it out in secret. In more evidence of the military's brutality, three peoples were reportedly mowed down by military vehicles on Sunday when they took part in a peaceful protest. The military's messaging is not aimed only domestically, however. Its actions are meant to challenge the international communities as well, which has failed to take any action against Myanmar's leadership in the past few years. First, on its ethnic cleansing of Rohingya that drove a million out of two refugee camps in Bangladesh, which the NLT government was complicit in. And then, its actions against the democratically elected government itself. Since February, the UN Security Council has done little other than issuing statements appealing for an end to the violence and the restoration of democracy and to suspend the nation's UN seat. 
While China, which has deep links with the military and a considerable investment in the China-Myanmar economic quarter, corridor, has sought to protect the junta from sanctions, the US has proven ineffective in ensuring a different outcome as well. It is ironic that Ms. Suki's sentencing comes in a week when the US hosts a summit for democracy. The Modi government too, given its worries about losing a foothold in the neighborhood and its need for cooperation with Myanmar military over the restive northeastern border, has chosen silence over any serious attempt to change the course of events in Myanmar. Much like its inability to influence outcomes in Afghanistan, India's effectual posture over the developments in Myanmar could also cause its considerable reputational damage as a regional leader. Impunity. The Bosch Army operation in Lagerland is yet another reason why AFSPA should go. Notwithstanding the rationale provided by the Union government and the armed forces for the horrific killing of six coal miners and death of nine civilians and a soldier in the aftermath of the incident in Mon district, the residents of Nagaland and indeed many in Northeast India will only read this in incident as an outcome of impunity accorded by the Armed Force Special Power Act or AFSPA. It is no wonder that two Chief Minister Conrad Sangma of Meghalaya and Nick Piu Ryu of Nagaland have immediately demanded its repeal. The act remains in place in Assam, Nagaland, Manipur, three districts of Arunachal Pradesh and the areas falling within the jurisdiction of eight police stations of the state bordering Assam, with the authority to use force or open fire to maintain public order in disturbed areas. The firing on the vehicle carrying the coal miners in Oteng village, village home to the Konyak Naga community was carried out by soldiers of the 21 Para Commando unit and attributed to a case of mistaken identity. This action should be problematic even within the purview of AFSPA, as soldiers who open fire can do so only after warning the person found in contravention of the law. The Army's and later Union Ministry of Home Amit Shah's contention that the vehicle was shot at only after the miners refused to cooperate when asked to stop seems incongruous as this was not an action at the Myanmar border seeking to take an armed infiltration but an operation well within the country's boundaries. That an ambush was purportedly laid on insurgents of the NACN, that is Kaplang Yungang, factions following an intelligence input and yet a civilian vehicle which offered no hostility was fired upon. Suggests that the armed forces were too trigger happy and showed barely any intent in securing order, which is the purpose of their presence in the region. The government has promised an inquiry by a special investigation team. It is clear that the continued resilience on AFSPA as a way to impose public order must be brought to a halt and the long-pending demand for its repeal exceeded too. Unfortunately, this incident could put a spanner in the Naga peace talks between the government and the National Socialist Council of Nagalim, that is NACNIM, and seven Naga national political groups for a solution that has been in the works. 
the secretive nature of the talks largely due to the government's smoke and mirrors approach to the peace accord has not helped matters either an approach that shows genuine remorse for their actions brings the culprits to book and seeks reapproachment with the konyag nagas through compensation for the violence besides a renewed purpose to conclude the peace talks with the naga groups is now the only imperative Basking in reflected glory, it is a cause for concern that those trained in India who are brought to become hugely successful. This article is written by G R Gopinath. Wow! I said when news flashed that one more Indian, Parag Agarwal from one of the IITs, that is Indian Institute of Technology, has been appointed the CEO of Twitter, a global technology behemoth that is shaping opinions, politics, and the lives of people around the world. Is this a cause for joy? Did the hearts of Indians swell with pride? Indeed, which parent won't rejoice at such an achievement? Is there any alma mater which will not be proud of students like Mr. Agarwal? a mass exodus yet there was something troubling a vague disquiet about this achievement can india rightfully bask in the reflected glory of those who left its shores and rose to the very pinnacle of their profession in a foreign land is this not the us's achievement is it not the fertile ecosystem of the us that helps spot talent and allows people to rise to the top The US has its dark spots but it holds a promise to the millions even penniless immigrants that they can achieve their wildest dreams if they reach there is this the america of opportunities that has become millions of migrants over two centuries not just indians but people from every nook and corner of the world mr agarwal's journey has been similar to that of many indians before him who we have admired over the years Many CEOs are from the IITs and other well-known engineering colleges. After graduation, they headed to the US and graduated from great universities like Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Cornell, Indra Nooyi, PepsiCo, Sundar Pichai, Alphabet and Google, Satya Nadella, Microsoft, Arvind Krishna, IBM, Ivan Menendez, Diageo, Vasant Narsingham, Novartis. Puneet Ranjan Deloitte and Ajay Banga Mastercard are some of those who rose to the pinnacle of their countries there are thousands of successful techies in smaller companies who also migrated to lead a gilded life technology dominates our business and life those who lead tech companies are the new rock stars and demigods of the modern world they have eclipsed the old world magnates of steel oil and automobiles men like paul getty andrew cornett henry ford but there are also other indian indian migrants who have distinguished themselves in us in the field of management education science medicine and economics amongst others the number of leading physicians in medical school and hospitals investment bankers and professor in academia boggles the mind but the loftiest stars among them are the indian origin nobel laureates in physics chemistry medicines and economics who pursued their higher education in us and settled there the troubling question is why do our brightest minds fly to the west soon after graduation and mostly to the us The exodus from a premier institution started in the late 1960s when private sector companies were few and there were few good jobs available in state public sector undertakings. The government provided only a few hundred 
coveted positions each year in the Indian Foreign Services, Indian Administrative Services and Indian Police Service. The rest joined revenues and elite services and lower level grades which offered security and sinecure. The exodus continues. Even as we fellow Indians feel a sense of pride at the prosperity of the Indian community in the US, we cannot but help feel a tinge of sadness too. India even after over seven decades of independence is mired in poverty and inequality while our most gifted head for the West. When non-resident Indians, accomplished economists, scientists, CEO, lecture in India on what it should do to become a developed economy or how it should achieve equitable growth to alleviate poverty, there is a widespread feeling that they have lost their rights to give us such advice. Even if it is sincere and well-intended, as they don't live here, we who live here have to fight our battles and our injustice and make India a better place. An insecure diaspora. But there is another lot of Indians too, million of ordinary ones, largely in the US, who cut off from their mornings and culture, turn inwards by building temples and forming regional as well as religious associations. This is an insecure diaspora which is not fully assimilated into adopted westernized society and also alienated from its Indian roots. These NRIs have become more and more jingoistic and find false pride in spreading fake messages about an ancient Hindu mythology. Messages that Indians invented plastic surgery or rocketry or airplanes much before the West and exhorting Hindus in India to be a proud to be proud of their religion and uh, guard against becoming a minority in their own nation. In doing so, they forget that they themselves are a minority in an alien land. At times like this, we feel a tinge of shame. Sashadri Kumar, an IIT graduate from Bombay with an MTech and PhD from the US, who returned to India wrote recently in The Wire that it is not surprising that a dozen of the top CEOs in the world come from a country with 18% of the world's population. He wrote, so forgive me if I don't join the celebration, but you know who should really be proud? The Chinese. Because Chinese people did not go to US to rise to the top. They were able to create success stories for themselves sitting in China. And unlike Indians who are merely CEOs of companies founded by Americans like Google, Microsoft, Twitter, and Chinese entrepreneurs founded world-beating companies in China, Alibaba, Tencent, Didi, Xiaomi, Great Wall Motors, Hawaii, ZTE, Foxconn and many others. When Indians do that, I'll join the party. That should wake up policymakers. What is India doing wrong? The greater glory is not in training engineers to become CEO in the US, but in enabling a conducive ecosystem in India that creates world-beating companies and in-building institutions that can produce Nobel laureates. How can India create a climate that will prevent its best minds from going to foreign lands? The US, a nation of immigrants, is a capitalist, market-driven democracy. China is a communist country that has embraced capitalism along with authoritarianism and snuffed out freedom. Both have built a great economy and eliminated poverty. Which of these should India emulate? How can it progress while preserving its diversity and vibrant democracy? Should we not feel remorse that we have failed our youth? youth who do not see a future here and fly to the US after graduation? Shouldn't we reflect about our own migrants and minorities and about their status in our society? Perhaps 
India is poor and not because of a lack of resource or want of talent but because of its policies, polity and politics. Jai Gopinath is a farmer, soldier and entrepreneur. Thank you.